Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Lauren Good. Hello. This is the podcast where we take you through the tech news of the week and break it down to the gadgets, apps, and the services that you need to know about. But it's really not just a show about gadgets. It's also about our relationship with them and how they impact our lives. And it's fitting that we're talking about relationships right now for a couple of reasons. One, we happen to be taping this on Valentine's Day. February the 14th. That's right. Some people right now are saying, yay, inside, and some people are like, oh, God. Mm. <laughs> Fucking Hallmark holiday. And two, one of the biggest news stories in tech this week was Amazon's big breakup with New York City. Oh, so sad. So sad. Or maybe happy. Um, after a month-long search for the HQ2, as they were calling it, and after deciding on New York City as one of two new locations late last year, Amazon said this Thursday that it was backing out of its plans to open up a corporate office in Long Island City, Queens, which was expected to eventually employ 25,000 people. Seems like Amazon maybe wasn't uh, primed for New York City politics. Okay, bad joke, police. Bad joke, police. Later on in the show, we'll also have a special guest, Mr. Chris Messina. Yes, he is a fascinating person in tech, and you might know him as the guy who popularized the hashtag on Twitter. But Chris Messina is also at Chris on Instagram, just Chris, his first name on Instagram. And that's very cool, but it's also brought him both joy and pain in life, and he'll tell us all about it. It. When we start the conversation with Chris, he will tell us about the times that people have tried to buy his username, about the times his Instagram account has been hacked and his username stolen. 
And if you enjoy the conversation, we highly recommend checking out Chris's Twitter threads with the hashtag, no, you can't have my username. <laughs> but let's get started first with the news. The big story you were just talking about, Amazon backing out, Amazon's year-long search for its second corporate headquarters, it turns out, was all for naught. The company announced in November that it would build one of two brand new corporate campuses in Long Island City. Amazon has pulled the plug on the project now. The Washington Post first reported last week that the New York City deal was on shaky ground, and then the retail giant made it official on Thursday by saying it was going to abandon its plans to build there. Amazon says it's going to continue to move forward with plans to build new offices in Nashville, Tennessee, and in Northern Virginia, which is in the D.C. area. The company will also continue to expand its presence in New York City, where it already employs 5,000 people. That's one-fifth of the amount of people that HQ2 would have employed in New York. As for the future of HQ2 and other locations, Amazon says it's not going to reopen the search. It's just going to keep going forward with Nashville and D.C. and a bit more presence in New York and its main headquarters in Seattle. So all that for nothing. How did it fall apart? I have to say I was surprised initially when I saw the news this morning, Thursday, that we're taping this podcast. But then I was not so surprised because really the public backlash to this deal had been pretty strong. It seemed like it was a deal that had been done, uh, you know, by Governor Cuomo without a ton of support necessarily from the public in advance of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I read an opinion column that was written in the New York Times about this, like, and it's a really great point. If New York City really is one of the best cities in the world, and according to some data, has the best pool of tech talent in the country, then New York City was actually in a pretty great bargaining position here. And what ended up happening was Amazon ended up getting some pretty crazy tax sweeteners and seem to have gotten in many ways the better end of the deal. Plus, we have to remember that those 25,000 people uh, that would have been employed by Amazon is what was expected, perhaps, over a certain period of time. But there's no guarantee of that happening. Right. Um, and anytime that you have a city that gets bloated with this many new people, I mean, there tends to be issues, you know, sometimes issues with housing, transportation systems, all of that. So like, it's, it's unclear how it would have, we'll never really know at this point how it would have actually all have shaken out over a period of several years, but it did seem like New York City and its eagerness to make this happen had given up perhaps some of its bargaining chips. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. I just hope that Amazon gives everyone free two-day shipping for all of the mental anguish that we've gone through <laughs> in watching this saga unfold. Like, the super long process of trying to pick the right city, and then the sort of saga of people debating how it would change these cities, and now the sort of yo-yoing of realizing it's not going to happen. Like, mm -hmm. it's it's been a ride. Yeah, it, has it really been. has. And honestly, I've been a little bit annoyed by it just because, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole idea that News is not news until it happens in New York. So now, you know, everybody's talking about this because it happened in New York. And would be we would be would we be spending so much time on this if it was in, in like Sandusky, Ohio or something mm. like that? Um, the sorry, Sandusky people. I, it's not an insult. I'm just using you as an example because it's the first thing that popped into my head for some reason. I apologize. But I. You know, I do think it's valuable, even if you don't live in New York, because what this brought up were a lot of discussions about how big tech money transforms communities, right? That was one of the big worries that people in New York had. Like, if Amazon comes here, like you were saying, Lauren, you know, we're going to have to deal with transportation stuff. We're going to have to deal with rising rents. We're going to have to deal with, um, you know, all of a sudden, all these buildings being 
put up overnight and our old cool buildings being torn down so these new boring buildings can be put up to house all these people in places that are close by. So um, those are valuable discussions for people to be having. And if your city is not having that discussion now, I guarantee you your city, if you're in the United States anyway, your city will be having that discussion very soon. Absolutely. Mm. Well, shifting gears a little bit, um, if you've been on Twitter at all this week, which I know we all have, you have uh, <laughs> likely caught wind of the sad and beautiful and heart-wrenching tale of the death of opportunity. Opportunity, of course, is um, the rover that NASA sent to explore Mars in 2004. It was only meant to stay up there for 90 days, but it roamed around for 15 years, acting as the eyes and ears for NASA scientists as it canvassed the planet. Um, And in those 15 years, it captured over 200,000 images. It explored the surfaces of over 50 different rocks. It found evidence of water on Mars, like lots of really profound planetary discoveries. Um, And then late last year, Oppie, as it's affectionately called, stopped responding to NASA's calls, like in a classic ghosting scenario. (laughs) (laughs) NASA says it pinged the rover over a thousand times over the past eight months and just hasn't heard anything back. Um, And so this week, very sadly, NASA has decided to stop calling. Opportunity, it seems, is dead. (laughs) And that alone isn't actually remarkable. The rover has been up on dusty Mars for a long time. No one expected it to last that long. Um, I mean, the dust alone could have just covered the panels that allow uh, opportunity to get its signals. So like the fact that it's not responding anymore is not actually so surprising. Um, what is surprising is the reaction from the internet. There's this, been this incredible outpouring of love and grief and sort of poetic expression. Actually, can I read you guys a poem? Uh, I would love to hear how it. How could I possibly say no? Valentine's Day. Okay. I saw this on Twitter. It's called There is Absolutely Nothing Lonelier by Matthew Rohrer. It is about opportunity. <clears throat> There is absolutely nothing lonelier than the little Mars rover never shutting down, digging up rocks so far away from Bond Street in a light rain. I wonder if he makes little beeps? If so, he is lonelier still. He fires a laser into the dust. He coughs. A shiny thing in the sand turns out to be his. R.I.P. Oppie. Wow. Good night, Oppie. Good night, Oppie. Um, That's like some existential shit right there. And and actually, NASA posted a bunch of existential shit as well. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Sort of leaning into this trend, um, some of the scientists who worked with Opportunity posted some really beautiful sort of Twitter threads that were eulogizing what it meant to give up on this project. Um, I'm sure you guys saw some of this as well. I I personally thought it was just a really beautiful (laughs) reminder of humanity that can still exist on places like Twitter and on the internet in general and the sort of spirit of discovery um, I don't know. What did you guys think? I agree with you. I have to say that when I first saw news reports trickling through that, okay, we've decided to stop making contact with the rover, um, I was like, okay, another another NASA update. And then when you started to see the way people were reacting so strongly online and you realized that this thing had been, I mean, someone brought up the fact that it had been operational since before we were on Facebook, since before we had smartphones, since before like our whole lives had changed. It was like this amazing little timestamp, mm-hmm. and then this was the sort of the closing of that of that era of exploration. Um, I also saw 
a couple of the other rovers. Um, I think it might have been Curiosity, the Curiosity Twitter account that tweeted an edited version of Candle in the Wind. <laughs> I mean, so the other the rovers were shouting out to each other oh. on Twitter. It, it really was quite, uh, yeah, it was quite endearing. Scientists barrel of laughs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing was supposed to be up there for three months yeah and it stayed mm-hmm. for 15 years yeah just doing its thing mm-hmm. yeah. it's kind of it's like the party guest that wouldn't leave but then actually ends up like saving the world yes. yeah <laughs> oh i can't wait for the hollywood movie and they show a rover that's just covered in dust from the dust storm and then it's been presumed dead for years it's been turned into this memorial and then it just goes bloop 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 and you're like oh my god <laughs> it's alive and then a whole Thread unspools from there, and then I don't know what happens next. But it we should figure it everybody. out. We should figure it probably does kill with everybody. its laser. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like a Wally sequel mm-hmm. turned horror film. Mm-hmm. Would watch. Yeah, yeah. What? yeah. <laughs> Let's get on that, guys. Okay. <laughs> Another news about the news. There's news on news. Uh, yeah, we're gonna get really meta for a second. Apple is reportedly hosting an event on March 25th next month, where it plans to reveal a new news distribution service. This is one that's supposed to act as a kind of Spotify for news content. Now, we did reach out to Apple once the report came out. They declined to comment when we contacted them and we asked about this supposed event. Uh, BuzzFeed had first reported that this event is going to happen. But regardless, we do know for sure that some type of Apple news subscription service is coming. The Wall Street Journal, incidentally, also reported this week that Apple's deal with publishers is quite aggressive. Apple is reportedly pitching a revenue share model where it keeps 50% of subscription revenue, and then it splits the rest of revenue with participating publishers based on traffic. Uh, Negotiations are still ongoing, and there are a lot of theories here, one being that Apple's news event, as reported by BuzzFeed, is coming as Apple is trying to put pressure on the deals to be done. Uh, Another is that Apple is starting high with publishers so that eventually if it comes down to a lower revenue share, like say 30%, which is what the typical revenue share model is with apps, uh, that maybe it will seem more favorable in comparison, right? It's typical bargaining. You start really high and then eventually you come down to something more reasonable. Uh, We don't know if that's the case. These are just theories, but this is all very meta for a couple of reasons. One is that we, the people who you are listening to right now, work in the news business. (laughs) We do. We do. So this is pretty inside baseball for us. Although it's also going to impact the way you consume news, possibly, especially if you are on an iPhone. Uh, The second reason why this is meta is that Wired's parent company, Condé Nast, was a part of a joint venture a while ago called Next Issue, which launched back in 2009. It later became something called Texture, It was a group of magazine publishers who all got together and they decided to make something that was like a Hulu for magazines. And then it was sold to dot, 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 Apple. So reports are suggesting that Texture is going to be a part of the backbone of this new news service. Um, And we're probably going to find out more soon. Yeah. I have to say, suspending my role as a journalist here, because I I think, Lauren, you're right, like this feels inside baseball for us because it affects our jobs and our industry in pretty profound ways. Um, But if I can suspend that for just a minute and speak as a consumer, um, I think a service like Texture, which I used to subscribe to, um, actually makes a lot of sense. And that the way that people consume news has has trended toward this sort of platform-generated type of thing for a long time, right? If you think about Facebook as a, an arbiter of news or like Twitter as like a place where you get news and you grab headlines from a bunch of different sources, then like 
it absolutely makes sense that Apple would be trying to get in on something like that. Um, and, you know, <coughs> Texture had a really nice interface and was easy to use and great. Does that mean I'm personally excited <laughs> about this? I'm, I mean, <laughs> 50% revenue share model does seem high. It is pretty much higher than every other revenue share model <coughs> that you can really, that I, that comes to mind for me right now. It's different mm-hmm. from what Apple offers app developers, which um, typically get 70% of the revenue for subscriptions sold through their apps. And then actually they get as much as 85% of the revenue if they are able to maintain subscriptions for longer than a year through the app store. It's higher than the Spotify revenue um, deal that it has with the music owners and music publishers. It's higher than what Apple has structured for its video platform. Like there, it just seems like it's really, really high. And I could see how some publishers, particularly legacy publications that have a little bit more power and maybe a little bit more of a direct relationship with some of their customers, like newspapers, might be a little bit more resistant to this idea. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. We'll see how it all works out. More news to come. More news to news. News, news in the news. More news in the news to come on the news. Yes. It's nice knowing y'all. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move on to the interview. Chris Messina is a product designer and entrepreneur who is most notably recognized as the inventor of the hashtag. Not the pound sign itself, but he is credited with first proposing the idea that the hashtag be used to create groups or themes on Twitter. I can see him clenching his fist right now as I as I introduce him. He has worked for Mozilla, Google, Uber, a startup called Molly, but maybe the most important thing that he's ever done in his career, he's snagged the Instagram name Chris. Just Chris, C-H-R-I-S. And we're going to talk about that right now. Welcome back to the show, Chris Messina. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I guess the first question that we should ask you is um, how much for Chris? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that there's a number. (laughs) Can we buy it from you? How much money do you want? What are you selling it for? The money would have to be like in my account. I've had too many close calls. Have you? You've had had people. So what's the... What's the largest amount someone's offered to pay for your? 250000 250000 Yeah. And you turned it down? Uh, not that time, no. And then it turned out to be a total scam. And so I learned my lesson. Wow. And so when everyone asks me now, will I sell it to them? Will I give it to them? Will I trade it to them? The answer is basically uh, no. How, how did it turn out to be a scam? Tell us what happened. <clears throat> well, you know, um, a quarter of a million dollars is like a good amount of money. And you're like, well, you know, even if like, there's like a lawsuit or something that comes out of this, uh, it seems like this would be useful money to have. And so uh, I went down this path uh, of, of exploring this, this option with this person. And I thought, you know, I might be tricky enough to be able to, like, figure out if this was, like, legit somehow. Um, and so I ended up actually, what did I do? I think I, like, waited until, like, 3 a.m. And, like, I changed the username, like, on my Chris account to, like, something different so I could keep the account. Because they didn't even want my followers. And then uh, I, I basically quickly tried to register a brand new account in, like, a new Chrome incognito window. And by the time I did that, within 30 seconds, it was gone. They took it. And so basically I was like, oh, my fucking God, like what just happened? And so um, (laughs) basically that then started this process where I had to somehow peel that back and and actually retrieve it. And uh, it turned out that it was so this person like sent me like screenshots of like the bank account, like with the money and like the whole transfer thing. And I was like, this is definitely a scam. Was his name Billy McFarland? It it might (laughs) It may have been. It may have been. <laughs> How did they make, like, what platform did this person use to make the offer? How did this even It was all through start? WhatsApp. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was through WhatsApp. And I don't even remember how this person first got in touch with me. In fact, actually, I, I oh, there's parts of this that actually repeat, uh, if I remember correctly, because 
this person actually, I think, messaged me and said they knew someone that I knew. And I think the person that they said that I that they knew, that we both knew, uh, was a legit person and that somehow that person had given them my number, which is why they were texting me via like WhatsApp from my phone number. It was very sketch. Wow. But this person like said some things, gave me some information, and I was just like, well, how can I even explore this? How do I try this? And um, you know, like I said, like I kind of like tried to like, you know, create this new account and I thought I could like undo it easily. I was very wrong. And um, yeah, so what apparently happened in that case was this person had what's called a turbo script. And what they do is they basically are like, they point this script at a web page and it just keeps refreshing, like essentially trying to capture usernames. And so they had obviously put this on that page looking for Chris. And then when it switched and it became available, immediately like the script just like grabbed it, like within microseconds. And uh, I remember that night, I had this just deep, deep sinking feeling like I had totally just fucked myself over because I had, because I deeply had. And, and, you know, so that was, that was the first time it happened. That was several years ago. Um, and fortunately, I was able to somehow get it back. And um, then it happened again, but under very different circumstances, uh, just, this, just four months ago, actually, um, where <sighs> that was a very different experience, though, because what happened was um, I was on my phone and I was like, you know, tweeting or something. It was like midnight. I probably had some drinks or something. And suddenly like my AT&T connection just like vanishes. I'm like, well, that's weird. And then so like, you know, I look and like, I, you know, I still have Wi-Fi and I'm like, okay, that's cool. And then um, I got some push notification from Instagram about how um, I think my password had changed or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and someone I'm stole like, your SIM. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. And so then I like try to like, you know, I go to Instagram and I, you know, I'm like looking at my stuff and then things start to just like break and like not work. And basically I get logged out and um, I'm like, oh my God, like what is happening? And so I go to my email and there's this whole like sort of like transcript of things that had just happened. My username was changed to something else. Um, My password was changed. Like all this stuff happened. So yeah, so basically they got my SIM um, and they did a password reset because I had two factor on um, and they were able to get in and grab my account. And they basically, you know, had moved my previous account to a new account and, made the Chris account private and it just like kicked off this whole thing. And so basically I was like on the phone talking to like, you know, friends until, I don't know, 2, 3 a.m. like trying to sort of figure out what I could do. And, you know, by 4 a.m. I was like, fuck it, it's gone. Like, that's it. It's over. It's done. And so so I lost it for a little while. <laughs> and uh, so I had to, you know, pray to the gods for a little bit and then eventually was able to get it back. How did you get it back? <sighs> uh... Well, by that point, most of my friends at Instagram had left the company, <laughs> so I couldn't really call them up anymore and sort of ask for a favor. Um, but I did have some other friends in high places that were able to sort of, you know, uh, file a ticket on my behalf and make that happen. So, so it helps to know people. It, it, it does sometimes, but I would say very rarely. This is like a very big Hail Mary pass where I had to give up, you know, my, my leg, essentially. And so now I walk with a limp. Mm. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about why your OG username is valuable to you. Mm. Um, I find OG usernames really, really interesting because on the one hand, they're kind of like vanity plates where it's cool that you have the thing that's u- unique and but also universal um, and it's funny to you. But on the other hand, it's like, who really cares? But actually, like, there's a lot of good reasons to care and there's 
sort of brand value, identity value, you have a huge following, like there's there's cachet from a lot of different perspectives in having a username like at Chris. Um, but I, I just wanted to hear from you, like what personally is at stake for you when someone has stolen your username? And of course, this isn't unique to you. This happens to, I think, most people who have OG usernames. Um, you become the target of a hack yeah. probably all the time. Um, so yeah, like tell us a little bit about like what's at stake in losing it. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I like it or have an affinity for it now is because of the things I've gone through with it. You know, it's sort of like having like this exoskeleton that, you know, it's just like broken up and battered and it's like a previous gen kind of thing and it's not as good as the current model, but like, you know, you just know it. And um, I think for me, you know, because I'm the user number 19 on Instagram, like I was there when it was called Bourbon, there's... A nostalgia for that and there's like a remembering process it's like you know i remember when um like i'm chris on yelp also which is much less interesting um, <laughs> <laughs> but like there there's a period where you know I, I probably had chris on on several other services that no longer exist right so it's a little bit of like you know a not tombstone for the social web that did exist one day and it harkens back to a time when we did sort of refer to each other, you know, by first names on some of these platforms or knew each other by pseudonyms. And, um, you know, just kind of speaks to the um, humbleness of, of where some of these platforms got their start. So I think for me, it helps in telling the story of what social media is. It helps me to also, I think, connect to like when I tell the story of like the hashtag, like how the early days of like Twitter were, I mean, not so different from how they are today. It's just like on a different scale, obviously. Um, but that like the formulation of identity and performing identity on these platforms was something that we were learning how to do, didn't quite know how to do. And, um, you know, for me having this name for that long for, you know, now it's like over nine years, um, you know, I guess means something to me because it reminds me of who I am and who we were then. Um, and trying to think about the changes that have happened since then. Of course, um, reply all did a really good episode on this last year about a woman named Lizzie who had her lizard handle stolen and they went through the whole process of trying to find out who this person was and actually ended up connecting with the ring of people who were behind this. Did you have any interest in trying to connect with people on the other side and figure out what they were doing, like what their appeal was? So the the secret of that uh, episode actually is that they interviewed me for that and that would have been like my story had that actually gone through because, uh, it was so, so crazy. Um, so <clears throat> I did the interview for Reply All. And, um, you know, anyways, at one point through this interview, I think it was Alex maybe was doing the interview. And, um, you know, we talked through the whole thing and I kind of like gave him the whole story because I wrote this like long postmortem of what happened to me so that the Instagram team would have that information because actually there's a bunch of broken stuff in there, two-factor stuff. Hint, <laughs> um, <laughs> Hopefully yeah. they will go fix those things now. Um uh, for example, you can't actually turn on auth-based two-factor authentication on desktop in Instagram. Huh. You have to do it through the app. And so this is important if you're worried about your SIM card being stolen because that way you can't actually move to only auth, uh, I'm sorry, app-based two-factor, which is important uh, if you're trying to keep your phone number from being part of your um, threat. Because uh, you can't scan a code that's in the web. Uh, it's not even an option. On the web, mm-hmm. it doesn't say, you know, use an app, basically. Mm-hmm. You can only use your phone number. So anyways, that's a disparity, and so hopefully they'll fix it eventually. But anyway, so as, as we're doing this interview, at some point, Alex is like, would you like to know who took your username? And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, hold on. And so he sends me these screenshots of the transcript in, I think it was Discord, where basically they were talking about getting my username. 
and they talked about the whole process and what they did. And so it was exactly that, where they got my SIM, either by someone who was like, you know, corrupt at AT&T and sort of like just gave them a SIM or like whatever it was, and um, showed me like line by line how they were talking about like me and talking about like the hashtag thing. And like, I mean, they were like, you know, pretty like savvy. I mean, and then the guy who got it, like his, I guess his name was Chris or something. And this is like, you know, he's just like his vanity thing. Like you said, like it was just like a trophy. It was like going to put up on the wall. Um, it was funny because I was watching them change the profile photo from like to all these different anime characters. And I'm like, what is this like some 12 year old or something? He's, you know, probably <laughs> some 48 year old man who just, you know, believes that he's still 16. Um, nothing wrong with that, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> don't look at me. When you say that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So uh, you you got to see how they took it. And at that point, you had an idea of how they took it. Were you right? Did you guess correctly? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the the thing that was both alarming and also relieving was like I didn't do anything wrong. Like my account was secure in the way that it was supposed to be, but um, because of this insane way that you can just like create a SIM and take over someone's phone number, which of course also unlocks all my other like two factor like codes, right? Which is also insane. So now I've switched that off, and so that's now I'm a little bit more secure. Um, you know, it just like was unfathomable, and then. The process, actually, for me to get my phone number back, which was necessary to sort of get my account back, was that I ended up talking to, I think, fraud and security through AT&T's website. But they wouldn't actually have the conversation with me through their chat thing. It took 45 minutes to get to this answer where I have to go to an actual physical store. And then when I got to the physical store, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll set up like an appointment for you. You know, well, it'll be easy. Just walk in, tell them who you are. Like, you know, we'll take care of it. Of course, I get there. They have no idea who I am. Like, they don't know anything about my story. So now I have to get on a phone call with them. Because, of course, you remember, I can't make a phone call because I don't have a SIM in my phone, right? So now I'm, like, in the AT&T store calling customer service. And I'm trying to, like, deal with, like, the local manager who's, like, in the store. And, like, they can't figure it out. Finally, at some point, they're like, oh, just give us your ID and we'll just, like, make you another one. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so that was, like, the whole process. And I'm like, this, the, oh, my God, the Internet is just not a secure place after all. So all the stuff that I've done on, like, Internet identity, and I'm just like, oh, man, it is a very brittle, brittle thing that we we have all this stuff built upon. Mm-hmm. Um, so how? tell us real quick, let's back all the way up. Sure. Tell us how you got that username. I mean, I'm sure it was pretty simple. Um, <laughs> you just typed in Chris. And it was literally. Cool. I'm pretty sure. Well, I mean, it was, you know, bourbon, yeah. right? So um, this was the company that uh, was founded by the two founders of Instagram. This is this is what became, became Instagram. right. Instagram, right. So, A lot of people probably don't know it was called bourbon. Yeah. It was, it was uh, also shorthand for bourbon, wasn't it? Like B-R-B-N It was B-R-B-N or something like that. B-U-R-B-N. Yeah. And, you know, it's also relevant. And I think, again, like... There's so much institutional knowledge that we kind of like forget, given like the the, the pace of change. But um, in in 2007, when the iPhone came out, there was no app store. There was no way to actually extend the phone through apps. And so the only way to extend apps, and I was actually very excited about this, and this is why I helped to start this event called iPhone Dev Camp, is because I was like, well, the web is going to be the way that you build software for the iPhone, and this is going to make the web so much more of a powerful and important. Um, you know, vehicle for getting stuff out there. And the web is open and it's free and it's like non-proprietary and all this stuff. Um, so anyways, what Bourbon was, was essentially a location-based social network for sharing your location, for sharing photos, for sharing text. It had all those different features, but it was an HTML5 web app. And at the time, you know, our like network coverage out in the world, mobile coverage was horrible. You know, this is why like Twitter was largely an SMS-based service in the beginning because to be out in the world, there wasn't like Wi-Fi everywhere and we didn't have... Um, you know, LTE, 4G, it was all 2G and 3G, so like super slow. Um, <clears throat> and so what I think both, inst- well, 
obviously before Instagram, what Bourbon was looking at was like, well, how do we use these new devices that are starting to become, um, like starting to proliferate, you know, from 2007 to 2009 to become a publishing platform to basically take the photos that are on the phone and give people a way of connecting to this stuff. Um, we'd had Flickr before, but Flickr obviously is like a desktop app, requires a beefy internet connection. It was all about high res photos. The phone is slow. Uh, you can't really apply filters to full-size images because the phone is going to crash because it doesn't have enough memory. And so they realized that if they focus on speed, they could build like a social network that was that was made for mobile. And so they did that for a while, but they realized that the location sharing stuff, which was similar to uh, Dodgeball or now Swarm, um, was just not as much fun as just sharing the photos. The photos was the thing that people seemed to be doing. And so they realized that they could build a native app once the App Store came out um, that would just focus on that. And that's kind of like where Instagram came from. And so mm-hmm. I was one of the beta testers of Bourbon. And so that's how I got Chris, because I just signed up when I got the invite. So did you know Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger? I did. Um, so I knew Mike because he actually, I think, was in the same symbolic systems class as my ex-wife at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And um, they were together. And so I met him, I remember, um, I think at the Palo Alto train station. And I think he was coding the whole time, you know, in some early version of Python or something. It was like, it was probably like the basic code for like, you know, Instagram. And um, anyways, we became friends. And so, you know, we, we stayed friends like through the years. And um, I just happened to be there early. So you go through the beta process of Instagram. Yeah. Instagram opens up. Yeah. It immediately becomes a sensation. Did it? I feel like it was within a couple of months. Hmm. It mm-hmm. was already very popular. Okay. And it was I- iOS only at the time. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. So there was the whole Well, Android like, was horrible for so long. Yeah. You know, apps on, on Android just were, were really, really bad. And I mean, there was also like an elitist thing uh, around iPhones, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> I mean, I remember like, oh, they're opening it up to Android. All those people are going to come in. <laughs> <laughs> but wasn't, wasn't Hipstamatic on Android? I think Hipstamatic was oh, on maybe. both, wasn't it? I can't remember. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like Hipstamatic is a really good example of I think in in a way I think about like Hipstamatic and Snapchat being kind of like, you know, violently for certain ideas or against other things. And Hipstamatic was totally against social. They thought that like the whole social thing was stupid and like there shouldn't be a feed and this is like an art project. And you're like, cool, it's not really a big business there. Um, And so, yeah, like, I mean, Hipstamatic was one of the the first like, you know, filter apps. but they just didn't quite get the idea that people want to show these things to people and they want to do it asynchronously and not just like looking at someone else's phone or via email or something. Um, so yeah, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, Instagram was pretty big pretty soon. Uh, so once it started getting big, at what point did the requests to buy your username start rolling in? Well, I think um, the way to sort of understand that is that I was probably pretty blind to them for a long time. And I say that because you know, once Instagram added messaging, and I don't remember specifically when that was, but I certainly didn't use Instagram messaging a lot. I use it now quite a bit. Um, but then in addition to the messaging, there was also the sort of filtered inbox. And so anybody could send you messages and you could decide whether or not, you know, you, you could see them or not. Um, and so, you know, I always had like 99 plus, you know, message requests and I just never looked at them and they were there for years. So I might've been getting requests for a long, long time. I only changed that recently where I started to look through them because I was getting deals like coming my way, like <laughs> not just to like buy my, my, my username, but like for like sponsored content, I was like, Oh, maybe, you know, I, I guess I should sell it a little bit, you know, cause I need to like, you know, buy my $8 coffees and stuff, you know? So, um, 
once I was realizing that there were brands like trying to reach out to me and like give me stuff, I was like, oh, I should I should read these more often. And so that's when I started to see all these requests for you know my username of, of various types, right? Like you know some would be like, oh, I've got this client and like they really want your username, or it was like you know somebody pretending to be Chris Brown's agent, and I was like, okay, I've already gone down that path. I'm not doing that again. Um, and then you had literally like the 12 year olds, you know, are probably the most common uh, you know ones who are like signing up for Instagram for the first time, and they're like, hey, can I have that handle? As though it's like no big deal. As though it's like, hey, are you eating that fry? You know, like it looks good. I know it's been there for like three hours. But can, can I have it? Um, it just felt like that's that's how it mostly feels. Um, and so yeah, so I don't, I don't know why I started to like post them on Twitter, but um, at some point it just I just realized this is like an art form. I mean, like what is what is in the mind of a person who sees someone with a mononym? You know, it's like going to Madonna and saying, I'm sorry, like. I know you're using your username, but I would really like it. And if it's no inconvenience, would you just give it to me? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. what possesses someone to think that that's like a normal request? Right. And does this happen in other parts of their lives, you know? Like, and so I just, I guess I just wanted to like document that because I don't always know if I'm insane or not insane. And so it's just like putting it out there to the world and maybe other people can then see and then they can find out what happened to me because I lost my mind. Have celebrities come, have celebrities named Chris ask for your name? Well, there was one recently, actually, who I think was legit because he has 80,000 followers. Um, and uh, I think, but maybe he was looking for the Volcano username. I don't even know what was happening with there. He was like, hey, do you also own Volcano? I was like, no, I don't own the username Volcano. Why would you ask me that? And he's like, oh, okay. But no, there was someone else that, that came by um, who I think was like legit and probably would have wanted to buy it. Um, who was it? I'd have to look and see. It's in my tweets. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you knew this person was famous. It's they, they seemed they seemed genuinely like a, a real person. Oh, that's interesting. Based on the tweets, based on like their you know the way they presented themselves, I would I, say yes. It's like Chris Pratt, was it Chris Pratt or Evan? Who's Captain America? One of them. There's there's One a the whole host there's so of many Chris's. Chris's. I know there's a I know. lot. Of them. It's, it's, it's we amazing. have a whole podcast. Helm, We've Hemsworth, talked about like this before. Pratt, yeah. yeah, that kind of speaks to the. <sighs> the part of social media that I find most gross is this idea that because you're famous Mm. and perhaps hunky and perhaps play Captain America in a film, you are somehow entitled to this username that is actually deeply entrenched in your identity. Um, Or the the idea that like a brand would would proposition you, like that feels so gross, Um, but also very much what Instagram has become in 2019. Um, let's not forget the story of the world egg, mm-hmm. the most liked Instagram ever, which is a picture of an egg, uh, which has become completely co-opted by brands as well. Um, Actually, weren't those people related to the fire festival? Yeah. I think the, the fuck Jerry guys got in yes, on it, what, but oh. they weren't originally they didn't originally, part of it. They, no, I don't think wow, so. Wow, that's so smart. They just like took credit for they it. They just, yeah. They're so smart. But I think actually that's a great example of like. I wish I had done that. I've been like, guys, just kidding. This is my idea. <laughs> the egg thing. If you guys want to do it some marketing, me. just it come to me. It was me. Hire yeah. me for your next festival. Um, but I actually think like that's, that's a like not so dissimilar example where it's like somebody made this egg thing. It got like weirdly popular. Millions of people got in on it. And then so many brands and companies and rich people harassed it and threw money at it that eventually it was like, okay, now we're a branded account. Mm. Um, Mm. Please pay us money. Mm -hmm. And you haven't relented to that yet, but it feels like that's sort of an an inevitability in 2019 um, because social media is like a place for brands and influencers and people with money and followers and it's it's kind of gross. And I wonder, as someone who is so early... um, 
so quickly evolved so early on Instagram, like, do you feel like something's been lost or something has changed in terms of like what the platform is for and what it feels like and the sense of community and identity Mm. that maybe is lost? It's a big question. Um, You know, I I guess one of the, the challenges is just that the currency of the realm of social media is attention. And um, I know, given my connection to like the hashtag, that like the simpler the idea is usually, I mean, not always the better, but like you have to have very, very simple, straightforward things in order to engage the widest number of people. It's just sort of like there's like a slippery slope and like I'm sure it's like a very steep curve in terms of what the amount of friction or complexity that people are actually able to deal with and and so on. And the, the irony actually is that having the username Chris sucks. Like it's horrible. Like not only am I, do I get, you know, six to ten password reset requests like every day. Um, but like all my notifications are for like the Chris, Chris Helmworth, you know, Chris Brown, Chris, you know, whatever. Like all the Chris's were not me. So I never see my mentions and I never see my stuff. <laughs> so it's horrible. Um, you know, uh, it's 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 just it's a different type of experience. So um, oftentimes I think I've actually captured some of those things too. Like I actually there was this one guy <laughs> who I went down this like very long conversation path with and I don't even know like what happened and it's it's one of those funny things where like sometimes you just sort of open up and engage with like a random person on the internet and you don't know where it's going to go or if they're trying to like kill you or something but like you just hope for the best and so I was like why your experience as a man is so different from mine uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to see how this goes maybe they'll kill me I don't know <laughs> please continue this is fair, this is fair. Um, and so I asked I was like why why do you want my username and um his his response was kind of like, well, you know, change is good, right? I was like, mm, no, but like, okay. So you say change is, is good, and so therefore I should want to change my username and just give it to you, you know, person with a sort of strange, you know, Chris with like 18 characters after a username. Um, you know what you're actually asking for. And so I attempted to sort of like go down this like long litany of things about how bad it is to like have this username. Um, and at the end of it, like he still sort of didn't quite get it. And I think, again, like in that case, there's a, a bit more of a vanity or, you know, transactional element where just to sort of like hold it up like, you know, um, Predator and like the aliens or something where it's like you have this thing and <laughs> you've done it um, was, was like the trophy that he was seeking as opposed to thinking about it functionally. And perhaps that's actually, to your point, one of the problems with getting on Instagram now is that finding a community and finding a group of people that you're connected with in an authentic way, in a useful way, and having them engage with your content in a way that feels good actually requires so much work. You know, essentially, if you think about like grinding from like a video game perspective, the things that you have to do to build followers, you know, like there's all these posts and like they tell you about it. And so if you're doing it in an inauthentic way, just to like gain followers so that people see your stuff so that you can feel validated and good about yourself, um, you're probably, it's going to take you a long, long time to like build up to anything of interest because these platforms are so um, populated. So the irony of these brands wanting these usernames actually kind of... um, one, I think, undermines and defeats the platform, makes it less interesting. You know, it's like sort of like having like this like boutique mall with like these really nice places to go and, you know, mom and pop shops where like, you know, you know the people who are there. And then like because everyone's going there, well, the big brands want to get in there. And so they move in and everything becomes like banal and boring and no one wants to go there anymore. And it's like MySpace or Facebook. So um, you have to sort of like think about that from just a churn perspective. And I, I, I do think that like, the, the flavor and the fabric and the texture of what Instagram is now is so different. It's so professionalized. And social media in general has become so professionalized um, that I suppose in some ways Snapchat is like an interesting realm because of the way in which it throws away content, in which it's less permanently performative, but sort of <laughs> episodically performative. Or like I would argue, I mean, I love, I love Snapchat, but like Snapchat is 
not doing so hot. I would argue yes. maybe TikTok sure. is a better example of something that's like sort of more ephemeral, less perform How, or actually, more authentically performative. This is this will this will date me, um, but like I, I have an account, but I don't use it. TikTok. Um, what is the what are the rules around media? Does it last? Does it go away? Does it stay? I don't know for sure. I don't huh. think it stays. Okay. I mean, I I'm not so deep in the TikTok universe mm. that I can say this definitively, but I'm pretty sure it's a sort of ephemeral. You yeah, watch that's a video interesting. And... I thought I, I'm totally. I could be wrong. I thought it was more <coughs> like Vine in the sense that like you post something, and it is short media, it's short content, right. but it's it stays on a loop. Oh, maybe that's. But it. I don't. I don't know because I've signed up and haven't really used <laughs> this it. Is I will we admit. I know we're like we we're tech here, reporters and we know what we're talking TikTok. about. But that's well, I, mean, I think okay. Yeah, maybe I think actually, Lauren, you're probably right that it doesn't disappear, but it's sort of created in such a way that it's not meant to be played more than once. Really? No, I don't think I, I've seen people. So I've seen people loop it on Twitter. Yeah. But I don't, but I, but I guess like it brings up this question of, so early digital natives like yourself and others, I mean, I think had a very early understanding that what you did on the internet had a sense of permanence. Mm -hmm. And then more recently in our internet world, we have moved into things like stories, which last for 24 hours or disappearing messages or even retracted messages now on um, Messenger. And there's this big movement. Some people are calling for Twitter to offer edits, which is a little Mm -hmm. bit different because it's not disappearing content, but it's actually going back and editing what you did. Um, So like, I mean, maybe we're fooling ourselves though because at the same time, everything is still infinitely capturable and shareable in some way. Well, I think it's super interesting because, you know, in the in the earlier days, the, the hard thing was to, like, capture and store. And so there was a preciousness to everything that you were creating. Um, you know, you wanted to capture all your photos and, like, store them forever because, you know, it just seemed like these were, like, these novel things and you just, like, wanted to have them. But then you realized over time that people would just create more and more stuff until you had less and less time to actually go back and revisit these things. So you're sort of taking this like, you know, photo box approach to your content, thinking that it should just stay around as opposed to the idea that actually these things are are actually quite trivial and very cheap now to produce. And so therefore you're going to produce them a lot and they're not going to be actually that interesting. And so um, the fact that Snapchat went in that direction, I guess like I'm sort of like looking at the line between Sort of like you know desktop photo software capturing everything, putting on these big hard drives, storing it forever. Then Flickr came along and it's like okay, upload it, you know highest res possible. We're gonna like give you infinite storage, like all this stuff. And then Instagram comes along and it's like okay, now we're gonna downsample it. We're gonna actually reduce the quality. We're gonna filter and modify it. We're gonna get rid of the originals. You know you're not gonna have like the negatives or whatever. Um, to now where Snapchat comes along and says you know fuck it, we're just gonna like throw out the whole photo. Like it's gonna be gone. And so that institutional memory and knowledge and that ability or desire to, to forget and to be forgotten is something that we've built into the platforms and systems. I think it's super interesting. And so I, I guess what I'm curious to see is because Instagram has this interesting dynamic between that which is communication-based, which is like stories or sort of like, let me capture something, tell you about it. And I don't have to think that hard because it's going away versus, you know, I think as Karis Wisher talks about like the, um, the, the gallery of you or the museum of you, which is like your profile, there are, or there is much of a deeper sense of I think architectural spaces within Instagram that is different than maybe a TikTok or a Snapchat, where you're kind of just like surfing through almost like a, like a TV signal that's sort of washing over you, as opposed to going to some, uh, again, like an archive that's permanent. And so in the case of TikTok, if people are using these things in a very casual way, where I, like, you know, you pick up a phone call, you call someone, you don't record the phone call, you, you hang up and it's done, and people are going to use social media in the same way then that means that things like usernames become a lot less useful or interesting, especially if search gets better or if you're actually finding things through feeds. 
-hmm. right? So the algorithm actually gets better at seeing what you're going to like and just puts it in front of you and there's no need to like follow anymore. Like following is an explicit signal that says I want to keep experiencing this thing over and over again or I'm curious or I care about this one person. I think because of the mass of people who are on social media, you don't need to care about any one person anymore. You're caring more about the content and the performance. And that means that that currency is actually changing quite a bit. Like the egg thing, right? There was like no account there before. They had like one photo and suddenly it blows up. Like that shows that that profile actually was not that valuable. It didn't need followers. And yet that one piece of content became incredibly viral. So, Chris, what I'm hearing here is that um, you need to sell your username now <laughs> before While the, the market's hot. drops out of the market. I, I, I think you are not wrong. So to re-up our earlier question, how much? <laughs> I mean, like I said, if the money shows up in my account, like, you know, I'm open to a conversation. <laughs> That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that, the future of following actually not being about individual people. And then what power does that end up stripping? If that ends up being the case, what power does that end up stripping from the people who have carefully cultivated their brand? as individuals, as users on a platform like Instagram. Well, I think it's still going to be an interesting mix, right? Because you have a question of, well, what are you paying Instagram for in terms of popularity? And is it to get a single, like, I mean, essentially you think about like whatever the third or fourth post on Instagram is, is going to be an ad. And so essentially you haven't followed that thing. And so they're choosing to put it there. But you can imagine that if you're a brand new user, and I mean, we suffered with this, you know, because I worked on Google Plus, like, and, and Twitter has this problem too, where you sign up for a new account and you go through this funnel where you have to follow a bunch of things that you're interested in. Well, usually it's a lot of the same brands, and increasingly, the more that they could, you know, fingerprint you or your identity or your behavior or your interests based on a bunch of, you know, circumstantial things, they could just sort of be like, oh, you're like these six other users that have already come through, and so we're just going to like give you that sort of content, and then maybe there's a way of just saying, no, I don't like this, move this out of my feed, and then you're doing sort of a reactive um, approach to content, like I don't like this, I don't want to see this, um, and so it changes the whole amount of work that's necessary to get started and get going. In which case, again, what you're paying the brand for and what their platform is based on is more about getting your content in front of the right people. I mean, as they say, like the best ads are those that don't feel like ads, it's content. Um, And yet more and more native content on Instagram, sponsored content, stuff that's coming from influencers is in this weird space. So yeah, of course, influencers are are earning kind of a, a connection to their fans. But as we saw on Facebook, just because someone liked your page doesn't mean that you have guaranteed access to that, that, that person, right? There was a whole period where people would have like pop-ups or if you want to like see this content or do this thing, first like our page, do this other thing. And like that didn't work out because you could have millions of likes and now Facebook is charging you to like access that audience. And so I think the same thing can happen you know, with usernames within you know, Instagram. So TikTok's weird because I just don't know how many people are actually getting followed. You know, and also like the way that let's say collabs work on Instagram where like multiple people will cross post on each other's channels and posts. That means identity is happening differently there. So it's almost like a TV channel um, where you're saying, I'm going to curate this content and people are going to put it through here or even, you know, meme accounts and stuff like that. There's a lot of them that I've been seeing where they are aggregators of lots of different people's stuff. And then the question is, well, who's paying whom or who's getting value out of that exchange? Like, are, is it leading to follows and do those follows then actually generate views? And I don't know, it's very complicated. So I guess I'm sort of, this is why like selling my username is not something that I'm that interested in. It's more like, um, you know, I collected like comic books, like I'm sort of a collector of things. So it's sort of like, I just want this like for myself to sort of remind myself of who I am and what I am and where I've come from. Um, And it's not going to have the same sentimental value or meaning to anybody else who gets it now. And so I don't want to destroy that value, even if it's like existential within me. So, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's mine. It's, it's worth million bajillion valuations. Yeah. And, you can't be yeah. sold, people. Yeah. You heard it here in the Gadget Lab podcast. 
They're Chris tokens. <laughs> and I issued them to myself. Um, so this is fascinating, but we do have to end at some point. Uh, so now is as good a time as any to ask you to recommend something to our audience. Some It can be a piece of culture. It could be an app. It could be a book. It could be a Netflix show. Uh, it could be your favorite pair of socks. Uh, tell us something that you have been into lately, and then we'll tell you ours. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the, the apps or services that I discovered um, not too long ago is a service called Otter. It's uh, available at otter.ai. And I like it for a couple reasons. Um, essentially what it does is it allows you to record voice memos, and then it does like an instant transcript. And it's actually quite good. And I believe that the team maybe worked on like the Google Assistant, so like the voice rec is actually quite good. And it's useful both for just taking my own sort of like memos, um, you know, and then also sending notes back and forth like uh, different people. Um, and you can do that with like, you know, Messenger or Instagram, or you can do it with, um, you know, messages. But for longer form kind of monologues, it's just this like great kind of way of being able to like, you know, remind yourself of what it is that you're talking about or like see what someone else wrote or, or something and having both the audio as well as the, the, the sound. And so, you know, if you're doing podcasts and stuff like that, it's super useful. Um, it's just really, really well done. Um, are your clips, are your audio clips shareable? Um, they can be, I believe. Um, you can also export, so you can export the audio itself, you can export the text. Um, I, also what's nice is you can edit the transcript in line, so you can sort of edit that and make improvements. Um, I, uh, I, I want to say there's something about, oh, the way in which it synchronizes the transcript, um, the timestamps of the, uh, of the transcript after you've made edits. So for example, sometimes it might get something like really wrong, and so you rewrite whatever it is, and then it'll like resync. Um, and so it gets better that way. So mm-hmm. I, I think that there are ways to share. There certainly is group functionality. In fact, one of the things that they, they're doing, which I think is pretty smart, I met the team when I was at Web Summit in Lisbon last November. Um, they were recording all of the talks and then making them available with the transcripts. And so they've been doing that for several different conferences. So it's a way, again, if you want to like read the, the, the content or, and or listen to it at the same time, um, it's a good way of um, you know, just getting content. So in that case, yeah, for sure you can share it. Very cool. I was at Web Summit as well. Oh, you were? I was. Oh. You didn't go to any of my uh, keynote interviews, I see. <laughs> That's okay. I, I read it through Otter. I'm sure. Weird flex, but I'm okay. sure. <laughs> yeah, weird flex. <laughs> um, you didn't go into my main stage events in front of tens of thousands of people. I mean, it was a huge audience. It was huge. We, like, could have ch- we could have chatted then about your Medium we, post we from years have. ago. I know, but, exactly. You know. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Lauren, what's your recommendation this Mine week? is very simple. Read Michelle Obama's book. It's called Becoming. I'm finally getting around to reading it. It's been out for a little while now, um, and it's excellent. What do, what do you like about it? Say about it. Um, I've been reading it in like pieces, mm. which normally I like to sort of plow through a book if I have the time to read it, and I haven't been able to do that with this one. And I find if I'm even if I just read five to seven pages a day, it's like a little, mm. it's a little slice of inspiration. Mm. Um, right now, I'm still reading about her, um, basically her childhood years. Right now, I'm in her teenage years, and. Um, yeah, just really interesting learning about where she grew up in Chicago and hearing about her family dynamic and the neighborhood dynamic. And um, I don't know. I just also I miss you, Michelle. <laughs> um, Ariel, what's yours? Um, well, I'm going to recommend something that I wrote about recently. But first, I'm going to give you the pitch. So if you ever logged on to Twitter, looked at your feed and thought, ugh, None of this sparks joy. And thrown it against the wall. Just, yeah, yes. and you're like, oh, there's just like so much clutter. Mm. When did I even accumulate all these accounts that I was following? Like, like maybe they sparked joy a long time ago. Maybe like I felt obligated mm. to follow someone back, but now there's just like so much. It feels daunting. 
Well, you could apply the principles of Marie Kondo, Kondo to mm. Twitter, and there's a, an easy way to do this, which is with a fun tool called Tokimeki Unfollow, which was um, invented by a product designer um, who had this very thought and said, actually, I can make a tool to do this. Um, and now you can use it. And basically what it does is link with your Twitter account and then present each person that you follow one by one and ask you very deliberately, does this account still spark joy? And it shows you like their past tweets. So you can scroll through and say like, actually none of these tweets are relevant, interesting, or joyful to me. And then you can unfollow or you can continue to follow. Um, and of course, if you unfollow someone, there's an interstitial page that says, thank this person for their tweets, which is what Marie Kondo tells you to do when you like give away a shirt or something. Um, it's really, really, really tedious, but I love that it's tedious because that's the sort of principle of Marie Kondo is that you have to touch each thing and say like, I'm thinking about this and I'm being really intentional about like what I want in my space and what I don't need in my space. Um, and I think that's a beautiful lesson we can all apply to social media to maybe sort of get back to what it was originally about, which is community and connection and, you know, learning and not just like digital detritus. Who was the first person you followed on Twitter? The first person I followed on Twitter was Ben Folds from the band Ben Folds Five. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. I guess I was into him when I. I mean, I, he's great. He's great. Does um, he still spark joy for you? He he does, and I unfollowed him, and I. I feel very thankful for mm. all that he has given me, but frankly, he's not very active on Twitter, and like, I'm not a he's mega a fan. He's <laughs> I mean, at one point it was a Superman, but yeah. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, Sorry. I was like, I didn't even know I was still following him. I don't know when the last time he tweeted was. I've, I haven't thought about him or his tweets in a long, long time, and it was like, oh, yeah, I can let that go. I can oh. let that piece of my life go. Goodbye and thank you, Ben Folds. Did you say, Ben Folds, you are not the luckiest <laughs> I unfollow okay, you stop. okay okay I'll stop rocking the suburbs now oh, okay oh. <laughs> but you Mike should is giving me the dirtiest look right now folds. you should be following yeah, exactly. <laughs> clearly sparking joy Mike what's yours well I'm going to recommend a cookbook um I kind of stopped buying cookbooks about two or three years ago just because, uh, I, you know, the shelf was ever expanding and the things that I was making constantly were sort of following in, falling into the same buckets and those buckets were already served by cookbooks mm. that I have. The one thing that I've continued to buy are Japanese cookbooks just because uh, the cuisine is so varied and there's a very traditional way of making something and then there are, you know, spins on making it. Mm. Um, so I have the traditional cookbooks, but the thing that I continue to collect are cookbooks that give you like a new idea about something that you have been making, you know, for years. So this cookbook is called Nanban, and it's by a chef named Tim Anderson. Um, he's written a couple of different books about Japanese cuisine. He's a, a North American. I don't know if he's American or Canadian, but you know, it's like that's a crazy Japanese name. Yeah, right. Tim <laughs> Anderson. He's from Hokkaido, <laughs> renowned for its many Andersons. Um, so the book is Southern Japanese soul food. So a lot of Okinawan recipes, mm. a lot of Nishi Nihon recipes, mm. stuff from like Hiroshima. It's really awesome. Um, I bought this book a couple of years ago and I just, the reason I'm recommending it is because just this past weekend I made two things from it and I realized as I was putting it back on the shelf that it is the cookbook that I have used probably more often than any other cookbook in my life wow. at this point. Um, I haven't made everything from it, but there are about 10 things in it that I have made 
30 times probably to the point where I don't really need the book anymore. But when I'm making it, I still take the book down and I flip through it just to, you know, gain a little bit more knowledge or read a recipe I've never noticed before. Uh, anyway, I recommend it particularly for the ramen recipes and the ramen stock alone mm-hmm. in it. Those are both really good. It has a couple of kimchi recipes. If you've ever wanted to make kimchi and you don't want to make it in the, the traditional Korean manner, you want to try something new, get this book, Nanban. It's fun. Um, the way that it's written, <laughs> the way that the the way that the sort of the recipes are presented, it's not like a stuffy cookbook. It's fun. I you like make it. a lot of kimchi, right? You I don't make a, a lot of kimchi. Oh, okay. I, I make a lot of. I thought you of, did. There's there's a Japanese. <laughs> oh God, we're going to talk about this again. There's a Japanese pickling style called suke mono with a tea mm-hmm. at the front, and I make a lot of that stuff. Okay. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. I thought you made kimchi, and I was going to ask if this is your go-to kimchi recipe. Uh, I've made it twice. Okay. And this one turned out better than the other one. There you go. And the other one was, like, from a traditional Japanese cookbook. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like a ringing endorsement. Yeah, Nanban. Tim Anderson. From Hokkaido. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining Mm. us this week. Thank you. Yes, thank you. you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Where can the people find you on Twitter? On Twitter, I'm Chris Messina. So my full name, C-H-R-I-S-M-E-S-S-I-N-A. And on Instagram. <laughs> I'm now verified as of today. Hey! Uh, so even more reason not to get rid of the stupid thing. Congratulations. Uh, Congratulations. Chris. Yes, thank you. Cool. That's great. And you can find Lauren Good at Lauren Good. With an e. the end. Uh-huh. You can find Ariel Pardes at Pardesoteric which is a portmanteau, if I'm to understand correctly. And you can find me at Snack Fight, which is a spondee, if I'm to understand correctly. You can also hit all of us up at Gadget Lab on Twitter. We'll be back next week. I will not be here, but two of you will be here, and you'll be talking about whatever the news of the week is. Along with some mobile phone news. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.